watchers in the fourth dimension. The sleeper must relax and believe. Don't just be obedient. Always make up your own mind. Have fun while you can before they crawl all over you. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. It will be fun for all. This episode, we're off to a sinister holiday camp-like colony where everyone has to deal with a rather nasty case of crabs. It's time for the Macro Terror. This story has its roots in the two really strong scripts, and I think we all agreed on that when we did those stories, that Ian Stewart Black had previously contributed to the show, The Savages and War Machines. Script editor Jerry Davis asked Black to write another one, and he specifically asked for a holiday camp setting with monsters living underground. Both Davis and Black wanted to avoid using previous monsters, and so settled on some spider-like creatures. Yet... During scripting, Black deviated from this original idea and scripted the monsters as insects rather than arachnids, and upon reading the script, Davis was worried that they might resemble the Zabi from the web planet a little too much, and suggested that giant crabs might be a good idea instead. Unfortunately, the rewrites were somewhat hasty, several lines of dialogue were missed, and so there are several occasions on screen where characters do still refer to the macra as insects, despite the fact that they are clearly crabs. Assigned as director on this story was John Davies. This was his only contribution to the show, but he's also known for his work on shows such as United, Zed Cars, as everyone else ever at this time was on, Tales of the Unexpected, and the Ruth Rendell Mysteries. Providing the music, because this time we actually have a composer, was Dudley Simpson, who returns to the show for the sixth time, and most recently he was responsible for the music on The Underwater Menace. In the designer's chair, we have Kenneth Sharp, who will come back on two further occasions in season 8 and season 14. He's also known for his work on, guess what, Zed Cars, as well as Up Pompeii and Monty Python's Flying Circus. Costumes, we have Daphne Dare coming back because she's always here, although this is one of her final appearances on the show. Also, Vanessa Clark contributed costumes, but it's her only appearance on the show. And looking on IMDb, she doesn't really seem to have done much else at all. So I don't know if her time as a costumer was just very, very short or whether she did theatre work or what. We now move on to our short summary, which is with Julie this episode. Boop, ba boop, ba boop. Four strangers have entered the colony of befriended Meeduck with the epic beard. Do not trust what they say. We have sent them to the refreshing room so that they may rest and be like us. Unfortunately, it has only worked on the one they call Ben. Girl Polly claims to have seen the macro, but remember, they do not exist. Boop, ba-doop, ba-doop. We have sent the strangers and Meeduck to the pit since they are not adhering to the tenets of health and happiness. Ben is to remain to keep his companions in line, especially this doctor fellow. We have heard the one they call Jamie has escaped. We will fill the shaft he has escaped in with gas. Boop, ba-boop, ba-boop. The doctor and Polly have diverted the guests. They must be found immediately and stopped. Jamie was found dancing with the colony's dancers. Ben has successfully turned him in. The pilot has disobeyed and is trusting the strangers. He must be stopped. Boo, baboo, baboo. They have discovered the macro. The pilot and the strangers must be destroyed. The one called Ben has turned against us. He must be stopped. We have been killed by the one named Ben. The colony will not be the same without us. Boo, baboo, baboo. <laughs> that was great and i admire your restraint for not leaping into the same crab joke that anthony made and that i was going to if it were me summing it up so bravo i mean i was going for the low-hanging fruit and julie is actually far more mature than i am it really is i mean all you have to say is the doctor has to save a colony from the worst case of crabs ever but no, she put yeah. some work into it. You have to take what is given to you, and you have the ridiculous big brother 
And you know what? I just took it and ran with it. Well, it was great. Thank you for that, Julie. <laughs> Before we get into discussing the episode, what format did everyone watch this one in? Black and white animation. Yes, black and white animation. Black and white animation with a little bit of loose cannon reconstruction. Yep, yep, that's actually accurate. <laughs> I actually did the official BBC reconstruction, which they released at the same time as the animation. I watched the animation, I want to say about a year ago when the uh, DVD originally came out. I really just wanted to see what they'd done. The official animation was actually done by the Loose Cannon guys, but with a budget behind it, so it was slightly better. It'll be interesting to see whether our opinions differ based on, on that. Moving into actually talking about what we saw on screen, new title sequence, guys. It looked wonderful. I mean, even if it was just the animated version of it, but it looked great. I think that face thing is kind of cheesy. That's not going to last. <laughs> <laughs> I do like how on the animated version, they do animate the face rather than use the actual title sequence. I thought that was kind of cute. I did a little research myself in regarding the use of the face, and I had heard that there was a push to do it earlier, but Verity Lambert said viewers would find it too frightening looking. That's a funny coincidence because my earliest experience with Doctor Who, I was probably like nine or 10 years old. It would air late night on television on public broadcasting. And I remember staying up late, watching something and then flipping the channels to public broadcasting. And then that intro starts with Tom Baker. And it did. As a little child, it scared me. <laughs> when they were originally putting together the title sequence in 1963, Bernard Lodge, who designed the original, he stood in front of the camera during test filming and his face got incorporated in the electronic effect and Riley you are right Verity Lambert did not like it said we are not using that Innis Lloyd did like it and agreed that Troughton's face should be used they created it and they were actually ready to go with the underwater menace but it was decided to hold them back until episode one of the Macro Terror I feel like they're psychedelic, more so than the original. It comes in and it's like immediately swirling patterns and stuff like that. I mean, this is 1967. We've got the Summer of Love coming up. I think it really fits in with the time. I don't really have opinion here or there. It's kind of different. It's kind of weird at its face, but okay, let's move on. Fair enough. We start out with a jingle. Not just that. At the very beginning, you have these majorettes dancing around like on a parade. At that point, it's not a jingle. It's almost like weird waiting room music. Mm -hmm. And all I got to say is with that opening, I was like, I'm in. It does grab you. Yeah. And like the one guy who's kind of like leading this quote unquote band, so to speak, I just sit there. I'm like, is it the music man? Has he come <laughs> in and tricked all of these people? Because yes. <laughs> Everything is so very jolly. And then and then Medoc shows up. I love Medoc. The, the other thing too is he's the only one with a beard. My experience with him is only seeing him as animated, so I don't really know what the actor looks like. But to me, when I saw him animated, I was like, it's angry Ringo Starr. Exactly who that is. <laughs> if you've got a would-be revolutionary, he's got to have a beard, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. One can argue that he's not necessarily a revolutionary. He's more of like a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, a little bit. Wouldn't it be interesting yeah. if just once the quote unquote crazy person that the doctor helps really was just completely out of their mind <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor actively makes things worse? I think it would be a nice twist. Like like if he was the uh, version of Sherlock Holmes from that Mitchell and Webb look, the extremely <laughs> yes. drunk Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Who's really just a, a drunk, crazy hobo. Sir Digby Chicken Caesar. Yes. 
<laughs> anyway, we, we we digress. I mean, that could actually be used as a decent plot device for the beginning of a serial just to throw off the audience. It's kind of like, I mean, I don't know if they still do this on The Simpsons, but they would always have like that one out there plot development at the very, very beginning. And then the entire story shifts to something completely different. Yeah, the cold open mini story. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see Doctor Who do something like that, have like a crazy person that ends up just being a crazy person like in the first like 10 minutes and then it's off to something completely different. So speaking of something completely different, they have a spa, steam baths, massages, etc. Wow, I want to go there. <laughs> I was really sad to find out that they had cut this one scene from the animation. The rough and tumble machine? Yes, it answered a lot of questions I had when it first started, like why Polly has a new haircut. Oh, yes. thank you. I was about to ask about that. When did that happen? That happened during a cut scene when they first arrive. They're put through, I mean, what's it called? It had a weird name. Refresh, refreshing department. Yeah. And Polly gets a haircut. There's a funny scene with the doctor where they all clean him up and then he jumps in another machine to make him disheveled again because he doesn't like it. The rough yes. and tumble machine. Yeah, it's very funny. Yeah. And then uh, Polly goes on this like thing where she's just saying that, what's his name? Jamie is like, looks like a king. Well, Polly, I get it. You have a crush on Jamie. <laughs> just tone it back. That mentioning of that edited cutout scene that just now f completely confirms my suspicions about the setting. It's the Emerald City from Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I mean, the, the control is the wizard. Everyone is creepily chipper and upbeat all the time. And then just like Dorothy, the lion, the scarecrow and the Tin Man, when they first get to the Emerald City, they go through a like a spa kind of thing. This whole thing is you take the Wizard of Oz, you take Brave New World, 1984 and Lovecraft and mush it all together. And this is what you get. Plus a Chinese dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and you set it in something that would be actually very recognizable to the British working class, which is effectively a holiday camp. I, I don't think you had anything equivalent to that in the US, but they were very kind of working class establishments, often by the seaside. Butlins was the most common one. It was a chain. You would go off and you'd stay in chalets and they would have competitions like dance competitions in the evening and things for the for the kids like puppet shows and what have you. So dirty dancing. Yeah, did Dandy dancing. <laughs> so yeah, it is. a little like that. <laughs> I feel like the Catskills is like a rich person's thing. Butlins was definitely very, very uh, blue collar. Nobody puts mm. Doctor in the corner. Nobody. <laughs> it's, it's funny because so you have this creepily, severely chipper and upbeat, happy, happy inside area, but then everyone's forced to get off the streets at night and then all of a sudden you have these like Dutch angles, a dark, abandoned town kind of look. And it's just enjoyable to me. I, I like that contrast. Also, that very chipper and jolly facade is very deliberately contrasted with the controller on the screen and uh, looking very much like Big Brother out of 1984. And I think that was a very deliberate reference. I mean, the, the 1950s BBC adaptation was the first to use that kind of huge screen iconography, and that was still very fresh in the public psyche. Mm -hmm. Just that contrast, and then there seems to be an undercurrent of almost paranoia as well between Medoc, but also the doctor saying things like, well, he doesn't cut, uh, crawl over the ground, and someone responds with, why'd you say that? It's yeah. very superficial. Yeah, and then like the, the happy stuff and then the brainwashing thing is more Brave New World-esque. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, okay, how many of these <laughs> things can we put together? Yeah, it was really funny. I actually caught on to like the, the tapping and refining of gas from the first episode. I was like, why would they do that? So I'm mm. kind of glad that that became like... <laughs> 
It's like, well, they said it. It must be important. The other thing that's quite jarring is how they're hunting down Medoc. By the end of the episode, it escalates to he must be shot on sight. What's he done to warrant that? If you're just watching it and you don't know what's coming, it's almost like he's committed some major crime or he's a major threat. There are a lot of jarring tonal shifts in the way they feel about <laughs> things, from these chipper little tunes to shoot him on sight. Although <laughs> Ola never seems terribly chipper. That fits that that ideal though of the the big brother, the everyone it feels the same, and so it actually to me made sense that they were going after him from their aspect because he is different, and that's a bad thing because they can only stay the status quo if everyone is happy go lucky. It's a very interesting commentary. You know, this is a supposedly idyllic society on the surface, but dissidents are hunted down and killed. Yeah. Or put in the gas mines. Yeah, I mean, that's something you would see in a totalitarian state. Yes, which is what this is. Yeah. <laughs> Run by Big Crab. Yes. Yeah. Big Crab. It's a big conspiracy. Can we talk about how the recorder comes back? Because <laughs> <laughs> our friend the recorder if we, comes if we back. Must. <laughs> It only comes out for a little bit. <laughs> you think he would have been able to like catch that same jingle intro and do it himself? That would have been nice. Oh, that well, would have been have. that would have been kind of fun. And also, if they would have added the shoot him on sight bits with the jingles, then it would have been like Willy Wonka. <laughs> oh, that would have been that would have been really really creepy and nasty. I like that idea a lot. What, what does everyone think about the macro, the actual creature design? Because I think that's our big cliffhanger of episode one, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just a crab from one aspect. Crab is a crab is a crab. It's very big. But what I like is the fact that the shots that they have of the macro looking at people mm -hmm. and having that diamond-esque weird yeah. view shot. Fly, fly vision. Fly vision, yes. I kind of like that they did that, at least, because otherwise, you know, it's crab. <laughs> I almost think the story would be better if it wasn't such a recognizable creature, mm -hmm. if it was just something alien. And I think the crab comes off a little bit better in the animation. The yeah. crab in the actual story was one of the biggest failures, I think. They were absolutely huge. I think they were the height of a double-decker bus or something ridiculous like that. And they had to be basically towed around by a car. Mm. I mean, they were so huge and immobile, it was ridiculous. And I, I think what they did in the animation, just thinking back to when I watched it around a year ago, I think they really seized an opportunity to do something creative with this story. Yeah, it makes it more of a believable threat, whereas in at least in the recon you take all this nice weirdness and tension and then there's a fairly ridiculous crab monster on screen and mm -hmm. it, it it just kills it also i'm glad we got a composer here but i really didn't like the tension music yes it irritated the crap out of mm -hmm. me every time it yes. came on i had a love-hate relationship with the music in general there were some instances where i really enjoyed the music and then some instances where i really hated it it was all over the place to me it only got really bad whenever they were trying to go for the oh here's an action scene and here's suspense and it just didn't work it was just annoying yeah it for the most part it didn't work for me and i was a little disappointed by that because i know how good dudley Simpson can be, and this for me was mm -hmm. definitely not his best work. I think what he was trying to do was take the tonality of the jingles and move them into a horror tension type type theme, mm. and it just 
didn't yep. quite work. I think you're spot on there, Don. It's a very, I felt very hit or miss. Sometimes I was like, oh, I really like what they're doing here. And then it was just, you know, falls apart. But um, I did not see them in the reconstruction because I only watched the animation. But I have to give credit to the animators. I think their motion, their movement looked great Oh yeah, in the animation. I mean, I didn't like the design as a whole. But like it did look very nicely creepy and their eyes in the in the in the dark. I mean, I really enjoyed I enjoyed that element of them. I but I also agree that it would have been better to have something unrecognizable or at least alien, I mean. Yeah. Or yep. even something that maybe we couldn't see where you maybe put yeah. some tension as to whether or not they really are just crazy. I don't yeah. know, just suddenly big crabs. <laughs> I think we should move on to episode two where Ben gets really interesting. <laughs> yeah. The, the dialogue after his brainwashing is almost Simpsons level humor writing in regards to when Jamie questions him. And I swear it was a, a back and forth of like, did you hear that voice? What voice? Go back to bed. We have to do whatever that voice just said. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it, I mean, I, I know those were not the exact words, but it felt like it. I was like, that's a like a Homer getting brainwashed joke. I think it's interesting that Jamie is not susceptible to the brainwashing and, and neither is Polly. I think a lot of that goes back to what I was saying about this being very reminiscent of a holiday camp and holiday camps being very blue collar and Ben is working class. If any of them had been to a holiday camp in England, it would have been Ben. I thought that was a fairly interesting way to handle it. I didn't quite think of it quite that way because I didn't have this background knowledge of knowing of these little camp things. But I did think one of the reasons why the doctor brought Jamie along was even though he was from the time period that he was from, that there was something just innately about him. And I just think that that partially being Scottish and suspicious of things, that he's just like, something ain't right here. <laughs> so I, I think there's just some things about him in there. Like, cause like Polly seemed to be like on the verge of being susceptible. And then mm-hmm. the doctor was able to kind of like, no, 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 don't, don't pay attention to that. That's not good. And she's like, oh, all right. I think it's like a, a little bit of a mix of things. And partially I'm just like, <clears throat> Ben just has a weak mind, but <laughs> that's a little mean. I know. Savage. But you gotta say what you gotta say. And- hey, he was in the military. He's vulnerable, susceptible to authority. He's very used to being told what to do. You know, that does kind of tie into like conformity, do what authority tells you to do is one of the main themes of the serial. And he was a person that's in the military and that's kind of what he was taught to do. They really do hammer that home. Earlier on when they're returning Medoc to treatment, they say he will be just like the rest of us. He will be cooperative and he will obey orders. Conform, obey. Yeah. I'm also really curious of why the three of them got one room and the doctor got his own room? Was it just because he was an older man? I can answer that. Okay. They didn't. They cheaped out on the animation. Oh. Ben and Jamie (laughs) had their own room. The doctor had his own room and Polly had her own room. That's why you'll notice during the animation, the doctor says, oh, Ben and Jamie. And he runs like two feet. (laughs) That's because they're going to a different room. That also explains another issue at the confrontation between several of the macro and Ben and Polly. That POV shot of the macro looks like Ben is closer, but then ends up dragging Polly away. And I'm like, wait, did they just go around Ben? <laughs> but that was probably just to save for animation. That's the downside of the animation. And those kind of stylistic cuts they made caused a lot of 
fan outrage on places like Gallifrey Base because they were deviating from the script and some of it was made just for cost reasons and others to get it done on time. They didn't have time to animate certain things in certain ways. They had to take the faster option. I don't mind that too terribly much. I was just kind of going to go with, well, the doctor's older than them. So sure, he got his own room and was just going to move on. It's kind of how I view book to movie, book to film, that kind of thing is that Differences have to be made for various reasons and whether it's cost of animation or just easier to animate a certain way, like that's fine by me too. It's just weird when the dialogue is saying one thing and the images that are supposed to go along with it don't. That's fair. I do like that once Ben is brainwashed, he can't see the macro. When he's trying to force Polly to go back to the colony, he can't see the claws that she sees. Even after that, he completely denies their existence. I thought that was a very interesting choice. I don't know if it was just me. I didn't quite feel that was he couldn't see them, so to speak, because, you know, it looked like he was doing what he could to hit things, whether or not he quote unquote saw them. I thought it was more of a his mind just refused to accept it. That's that's kind of what I meant. Yeah, I thought he was just forgetting it. Yeah. If it's right there in front of him, he's like, okay, I'll do this. But then as soon as he's away from it, he goes back to his conditioning. That makes sense. I, I took his at times as that he wasn't able to perceive them unless he was directly under threat. What had happened was, is she saw it in the shadows. I think he kind of saw it, it kind of disappeared and he was like, there's nothing there. Then when it finally came out, he could actually see it. He didn't want to accept it at first because he was like, well, nothing bad can actually be here. What is this thing in front of me? And then ultimately started hitting it to get Polly free. And then once Polly was free, he went back to, okay, it was actually nothing because nothing's down here because nothing bad exists here. That makes sense. I do love the repeated phrase, there are no such thing as macro. I like it when it comes from the controller and he just gets hysterical. <laughs> You're not really selling your message there. When you do that. Yeah. Aren't you meant to be kind of cool and collected? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Okay, never mind. Also, can we talk about the doctor using a screwdriver? Because the sure. doctor was using a screwdriver. We're getting there. Almost there. <laughs> do you think that the brainwashing is what made Ben have to wear shorts? Because that's just never a good look. <laughs> Even in a like on a futuristic colony, it just especially with that top, not not a good look. No, I think he's been fighting that urge the whole time. He got jealous because in one of the last episodes, Polly got to wear shorts. Mm. So I, th I think he was trying to like get into a like a toned calf competition with Jamie because he's always in the kill. Well, he's gonna lose, and he was trying to show <laughs> off. Yeah, probably. Yeah, he would definitely lose that. Yeah, he's gonna lose. Can we talk about the cliffhanger of episode two? Big, big fan of that move that has happened in so many movies or television where a group of people are watching one person on television and then you, they are watching the horror in the eyes of someone and you're watching them watching the horrors. You know, it's just, I just love that. They don't see what's going on behind the camera. You don't see what's going on behind the camera. It's an old technique, but I love it to death. And they did it great. I really liked the, the old man controller that they had in the, the reconstruction. In the animation, he looked like he was going to be playing guitar in a post-punk band, so I don't think it quite <laughs> sold the fact of how much older he was. Yeah. But the scene itself is really cool. Yes. I love that in, in the original, when, as we saw in the recon, that it's a an older guy after the vision they put on the screen repeatedly for the controller. It, it really hammers home that what you're seeing on the screen isn't the truth. And he's old and he's terrified, and his voice doesn't match what we've been hearing at all. 
I really love that. Did it come through on the reconstruction, like the camera gets knocked to the ground and the lighting shows the shadows? Does that happen as well, like they did in the animation? I think so. I mainly skimmed through it looking for certain things and to Mm -hmm. see, you know, missing scenes and things like that. I don't think it does, but I might be misremembering. I I gotta say, the macro can set up a TV studio and they can write catchy jingles. I I think they're like cable tv producers and they have really good talent for voiceover they really do (laughs) they really do you you wonder okay are they putting this voice into the minds of the people no they're using the pa so these big ass crabs can talk well you know which once again falls into the theme of this entire serial is like this society that is indoctrinated by media basically and the media is run by the crabs behind the scenes that know exactly the right voice to give you and the right image to put up on the screen consumerism man (laughs) (laughs) we're getting into they live territory kind of yeah As we move into episode three, if they were still giving these episodes titles, who else thinks that episode three would have been called The Danger Gang? Oh my god. (laughs) Yes. I know. I I couldn't understand it. I had to like look up the transcript. I'm like, are they saying Danger Gang? Yes. Like, is that really what they're going (laughs) to call this like this enslaved, you know, work till you die crew Danger Gang? That's just kind of like like a mean joke. It sounds like a Scooby-Doo ripoff. Or a (laughs) Scooby-Doo ripoff, yeah. If they're talking macro as a pet and they go and solve mysteries. I would watch that. (laughs) (laughs) A little baby macro. (laughs) Look at me. We always forget that at some point the macro must have been really little and it must have been so cute. Like a fiddler crab or something? (laughs) I like that idea. I just can't get over how like insulting that is to an enslaved group of people that are like basically being worked to death. Oh, what are they? They're the danger gang. <laughs> like, <laughs> God, that is so cruel. So let's talk about that slave labor. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. How about that? Well, and then, you know, Jamie has to go and be all, you know, it's like, you don't send an old man and a lassie down to dig. To be fair, they don't send the doctor to dig. But that was Jamie being smart because he's like, wouldn't you be more useful up here? Huh? Huh? Yeah. Because the doctor was like, no, I'll go. I'll dig. Let, let Polly be safe in the control room. It's yeah, I, th- I think that that was undoubtedly yeah. the, the smart thing there. And then Jamie gets his chance to wander around mine shafts for 10 minutes. Speaking of Jamie, I do like when Ben is spying and talking to the doctor and the doctor basically says, hey, you know, I'll forgive you because you're being brainwashed, but Jamie's probably going to beat your ass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm not going to stop him. Have a nice day. I love that. Good. I hate to be that person that's just constantly comparing Ben and Jamie, but since Ben always wants to try to one-up Jamie, I just love just watching it happen and watching Ben dig himself into a hole. It's just like, I'm sorry, buddy, but you're just going to lose this battle. (laughs) Repeatedly, because Jamie's the best companion we've had ever. Mm. Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. Because Babs. Yeah. Yeah. Babs. I love how the doctor goes math crazy and he's just like, look at this equation that I figured out. And the pilot comes in and is like, how did you figure all this out? Because I'm smart, intelligent, and I look at things. (laughs) (laughs) It was basically the inspiration for Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. That's what you're saying. (laughs) Yes. Oh, boy. 
I did really, really like that as well. It's kind of how their society works. Everyone has to work together in order to accomplish something. And so the fact that the doctor just comes in, figures it out all on his own, and is just being observant, it's just odd for them to see something like that because that's not how their society works. That's true. They're not used to someone being able to think on their own. Yeah. And then he then he turns and looks at the pilot and says, do you like macro? Well, how about these macros? <laughs> <laughs> This is a very conformist society, and you can tell that by the fact that one of the guys down in the mines is in charge is named Officia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah. I just imagine, like, <laughs> the writer being like, I'm just not good at coming up with character <laughs> names. I can write. I just can't. Not subtle, guys. Oh. <laughs> So we steal some keys from Officia after he squirts gas in his own face like a genius. <laughs> this is what happens when you don't let people think for themselves. They squirt gas in their face. <laughs> Obviously, I believe this is the weaker of the four episodes. Yes. It's a lot of putting people in the right place. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's a movement episode and there's a lot of plot happening and yet not a lot of plot happening. Can we can we not call the episode about the gas mines the movement episode? Because I'm trying <laughs> to resist that low-hanging fruit and you're, you're goading me into it, Julie. And that's not fair. That's... My mind does not work like any of you guys. Consider yourself lucky. So, the movement episode... <laughs> So Jamie continues to just wander around aimlessly through the mine shafts. It seems like Ben is fighting off the brainwashing. Yeah. He's trying to. And it looks like the, the doctor and Polly are sitting there and figuring things out. And Ringo Starr dies. Yeah. That was, that was sad. It was sad. I wasn't quite ready for him to die. No, he should have at least made it to the final episode. That beard is just so good. I just wanted to see, like, would he actually, like, in the final scene where everyone's just partying at the very, very end, would he have, like, actually cracked a smile at that point? He would have danced. We'll never know. <gasps> yes. He would have danced. <laughs> and it would have been glorious. All right, and so we end with a giant crab attacking Jamie. It was so good, you have to end with another crab attack. That's how you end each episode of the Macrotera. I did like the the gas has been there in the background, right? You're kind of fed it as if you know it's going to be important, but you don't know why. And as he's heading in there and the gas is getting pumped in and the macros start coming to life, it's that kind of light bulb moment of, oh, it keeps them alive. And suddenly the MacGuffin makes a bit more sense. I noticed with the animation that there always seemed to be gas around no matter where they were. And it was one of those things where I was like, it's always just always present. Why is it always here? Why would it need to be in with them? Is that what keeps them complacent? And that's what keeps them happy? It's everywhere. <laughs> Episode four. This one is really enjoyable. Usually, like, I feel like it's been a while since we've had a good climactic episode of a serial for Doctor Who, but I really enjoy this one a lot. It just, there's so many great little bits and beats to it. Oh, I really enjoyed this one. It starts with the doctor asking Polly to go check those dials, and she just walks over, checks them, walks back over to him. No one questions her at all. Maybe she made them coffee off screen. <laughs> <laughs> Polly's amazing coffee. <laughs> And the doctor reverses the polarity of the air intake flow or something like that. <laughs> something like that. I did like a lot of what the doctor was doing and following the pipes 
the way he locks the colonists out of the control room so it's just him and Officia and I think Polly. He's using Officia to get more information about how everything works. To me, the second Doctor's really come into his own by this point. He's doing things in at the start of this episode that I just couldn't imagine Hartnell doing. A great example of that is when the second Doctor talks to Polly and says, now come along, Polly. I'm sure there's no need to be afraid. Well, well, I think there's no need to be afraid. Oh, come on. Let's just find out. <laughs> I, and there's, there's some, I mean, obviously I can't do it justice, but there's just some, some something like very heartfelt and just kind of like adventurous, but like, you know, we'll be okay, kind of comforting at the same time that was really wonderfully done there. His delivery is always great. He gets the lines right, which means we unfortunately don't get things like problems with the fornicator, but he always <laughs> hits that emotional beat. It's great. Yeah. I miss the fornicator. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> Why is Officius so useless? He's still in there with them. He could have stopped them, but just didn't. Could he, though? He's not very good at his job. He's he's just middle management. He can't actually do anything. And also, he's part of the brainwash. So, like, you know, like you said, they don't really think for themselves. If he were part of, like, the security, then yes, he could have done something to stop them. But he's not. He's just a lackey. Everyone has their place. Yeah. He doesn't know how to fight. Now let's talk about the most important scene in this serial. Yes. Which is cheating. I, I know what it is. Yes, of course. Yes. That's what it is. <laughs> what a great oh little comedy moment. It was so good. Did also love the, the really sinister song they were singing about we all know control is right and we must obey oh my god that was so delightfully <laughs> creepy yeah it's they they're singing that song which is just creepy you see jamie trying to sneak by in view of everybody because he's behind the director but everyone else is watching the director <laughs> so it's like how is no one seeing this at all and then he's almost gone and he's like oh are you one of the dancers and he's like yeah totally and then my favorite is that he's like yes he's doing this jig and he's like Oh, what is it called? And it's called it's uh, called the Highland Fling because I'm flinging myself out of here. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> though I have to say that the the Pep Leader's costume that is the ultimate classic Who cosplay right there. <laughs> I've got to say that that was stunning. It's not better than the sex pants. What true, is wrong true. with you? Not much can beat that. So we all know what Riley's doing when we can have conventions again. Yes. The Vord versus the Macra, because they probably know how to deal with crabs. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Thank you. I tried to hold off, but I couldn't. Hey, the swinging door shot was really nice as Jamie flings himself and you see the doors swing and then you see the security force like there. I don't know. I thought it was a nice little reveal. That was there in the recon as well. Yeah. That was very, very well done. And I do like that once Ben gives Jamie away, he clearly feels really bad about doing it. He could be killed, but I feel terrible. Oh my god. <laughs> he was fighting it earlier when he held off on telling them that Jamie had stolen the keys. Yeah, he did hold off on that. So you can tell he's fighting, putting up the good fight, and then the Doctor and Polly figure out that they need to get the pilot on their side. I did really like the way the Doctor describes the macra, talking about them as parasites and almost as if they're germs in the human body. I thought that was some really, really cool dialogue that really suited Trouton vocal cadence, almost in the same way as there are things out there, they must be fought, speech from the moon base. And based off the themes of this serial, I couldn't help but think of the movie Parasite and its anti, very inequality and kind of like manipulation of people that are very powerful. And right now, the, 
the macro have set themselves in a society in which they get all the benefit and force everyone to do the work theme that was discussed in Parasite, the, the film. And also in that very, another award-winning film called Society uh, by, I think, a director named Brian uh, Yuzna. It's actually a, not an award-winning film. It's a very tongue-in-cheek horror movie, body horror movie from the 80s that is hilarious and terrifying at the same time. That also carries the idea of like the powerful being actually parasites over the workers. One thing this does very, very well is it takes what's ostensibly a children's show with scary monster, a scary B-movie-like monster, but puts a very kind of subversive, anti-authority, anti-corporation, anti-government message behind it. I think it's really interestingly done. The macro live in smoke-filled rooms, literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I mean we have we we have our our wonderful victory. I do like how when they're arguing with the controller and this goes back to I think it was you Riley or it might have been you Don earlier talking about how control often sounds increasingly desperate in the arguments mm -hmm. and very much losing its cool. I find that fascinating how you would expect kind of a big brother figure to be authoritative, assertive and calm under pressure, but control loses loses its cool. I, I, I don't want to assume the gender of a macro, so I'm going to use it. What's interesting about it too is the pilot is essentially the leader on, we'll, we'll just call him the human side of things. And I think part of it is as long as he had the pilot on his side, it seems like everything worked itself out because the pilot would then just direct who needed to do what. If someone needed to get captured, he was kind of directing all these things. And the pilot finally was like, oh, these people might be onto something and are kind of hinting at things that I've known about, but have just kind of swept underneath the rug. So I think that that was a good target on their point of who do we need to convince and why. And the macro would just be terrified that the one person who kind of needs to know is the one who's being told. I was wondering exactly how they managed to break the pilot's conditioning. Mm. That seemed a little underexplored. I think mm -hmm. part of it is because as, as being the head of everything, he needed a little bit more, I won't say leeway, but he needed more self-awareness than other people to be in charge. I can see that. It seemed a little bit unclear because one thing I liked about the brainwashing in this was they still maintained most of their real personality. They weren't, mm -hmm. you know, zombies. They mm -hmm. could speak and talk and you didn't really know. But there were certain things that they just wouldn't accept or talk about or even think, hey, that's not even real, even if they've seen it with their own eyes. That's true. I yeah. think what helped is that by the time the pilot ended up seeing them, he was also hearing the voice of control at the same time as he was seeing them. So I think that helped with that because anytime that Ben saw the macro, they weren't speaking. Please ignore the voice coming out of the giant crab. Yes. <laughs> that. That almost sounds kind of um, Futurama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We already made reference to Simpsons, but, you know, it, it, it sounds like... Uh, Hypnotoad. Or Hypnotoad, yeah. And to be fair, I don't know how else they would have explained how he broke his conditioning, so I don't quite blame them for it either. Yeah. Fair. At one point, they intend to lock the Doctor, Polly, Jamie, and the pilot in the pipe room and gas them. That sat really uneasy with me just because this is a totalitarian regime gassing people. Yes, that was the point. 
I know, but I just wanted to draw some attention to it. Yes. And then Ben comes to the rescue. Finally overcoming his conditioning. Good old Ben. So they told me I was going to have to wear pants from now on. Thank God. <laughs> Once the Macra have been defeated, one thing I found really interesting was effectively they just go back to more or less the exact way of life they had under the Macra, just without the Macra being in charge. Everyone's ridiculously happy and they're partying all the time? Yeah. They're cheerful, whatever. Doesn't matter. At that point, does it really matter? If you're just living the exact same lives, does it matter whether you're doing it with some uh, giant crabs controlling you or if you're doing it without any? I think it depends on who's on the danger gang or not. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Were they, were they up in the, that party at the end? They might not go around shooting people. Yeah. yeah. Cap's still got to make money, yo. And where's the memorial for angry Ringo Starr? <laughs> <laughs> I think these people are just wanting to like not admit to their past crimes. I'm not even sure if they realized that they but, had past crimes. <laughs> but the doctor gets another awesome hat. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and once again, he doesn't say I should like a hat like that. He does say something similar, though. I'm trying to remember what it was. It was something along the lines of I should have a mask like that or something to that effect. Oh, yes. It's a, the mask. I would have liked a mask because he didn't get to go down into the mines. Yes, that's it. I would have liked a mask. Always got uh, got envy over the headgear as the second Doctor. The ending is another area in which I think the animation deviates from what was actually televised. In the televised version, they basically make their escape through uh, dancing out of sight. They all did the, they all did the Highland Fling. Yeah, <laughs> which I think is wonderful. To be fair, <laughs> I, I'm not really sure if they could have animated that where it wouldn't have looked completely silly. I understand why. I, I just I did miss it when I saw the animation. I, I would have loved for it to be there, but I understand why it wasn't. That brings us to the end of the discussion of the story. Okay, so with that, metrics, the camp count. I think the dance scene with Jamie was fairly camp. Well, the, the, the pep leader, at least. And the fact that the whole thing was in what was ostensibly a holiday camp. <laughs> I think it gets a point for that. What, what do we think on giving this one a two? That sounds I'm fine, fine with that. Cool. We do have a quarry that pays into quarry quarry. I think we're going to start seeing more quarries and I'm very excited for that. We move into our ratings. Riley, you get to start first this time around. Like I said before, first like introduction to the serial, crazy weird waiting room music, majorettes dancing around. I immediately knew I was, I was going to like it. It continued on. It's your creepy monster story with like things in the background, controlling things, good themes. Everything's tied around, decent pacing, some great little beats, some funny. Bit. I mean, it's just an enjoyable, well-rounded, great Doctor Who serial that I've come to expect from the show. I, I just enjoyed it so, so much. And I know we have to state this or one of our listeners will bring it up. The Macra come back in the 10th Doctor episode uh, called Gridlock. Yes, they do. Obviously, I'm guessing that's uh, RTD back then for a 10th Doctor, so I'm assuming he was a fan. I am a fan too, so I'm going to give this serial 8 out of 10 old shafts. All right. <laughs> nice. Uh... <laughs> Don, over to you. I don't really want to follow an old shaft, but I'll, I'll do the best that I can. <laughs> <laughs> going into this i wasn't really sure how to feel about this serial because i had heard it was the one with the giant crabs and like i said earlier i think the design of the macra especially when you see it as it was actually realized can be problematic 
and that it makes you miss the fact that this is a much deeper serial than it might seem on the surface. That's my one criticism, along with the fact that in certain points, the music just drove me crazy. It wasn't good, and it wasn't setting the right mood. Yet, at the same time, a lot of the background noises they were using, these weird, high-pitched, almost howl things, were incredibly cool and set a proper mood. So looking over it, I think I really liked it, and I think Doctor Who is on a really good streak now. They're approaching these serials, they're much more confident, and it feels like they're really, they know what they want to do. So I'm going to give this eight enormous Crab Rangoons out of ten. (laughs) (laughs) Marvelous. Julie. I don't want to reiterate too much of what's already been said. Overall, it was just one that I enjoyed. A lot of the music I kind of thought was catchy, and then some of the music, again, was just kind of hit me over the head, please. But I loved that all of the companions had some things to do. The doctor was the doctor. Those are all things that I like to look for. So I'm also going to give it 8 out of 10 Highland Flings. (laughs) I really love this story. I think it's absolutely wonderful. It really sets the tone of the era for me. As I mentioned earlier, we're, this is 1967. We're coming up to the Summer of Love. We've had this huge kind of counterculture movement. Doctor Who seems to be tapping into that. We have an oppressive regime with echoes of corporatism and totalitarianism, it it goes a little all over the place as to whether this is anti-government or anti-corporation or both. I think it's just a lot of fun, regardless of where it sets that tone. It allows us to make jokes about people having crabs and old shafts and gas movements. (laughs) It hits the comedy with the terror quite well. It draws on some wonderful inspirations, 1984, Brave New World, just about every single BBC sci-fi to date at the time. I think Quatermass 2 had some monsters that lived on gas as an example as well. It's really hard to not find a lot to like in this and to really pick it apart. So for me, this gets eight and a half terrified old men. Which gives us a story average of 8.13, which makes it joint tied for highest so far this season. I think we've got another winner here. We are just about out of time at this point. We'll be back next time when we're going to experience the very visceral horror of the airport. In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D. And as a reminder, you can also email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help us out. But for now, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, like Dirty Dancing, but with crabs, was recorded on Wednesday the 1st of July 2020. And always remember, there's no such thing as this episode. This episode does not exist!